is November 8, 2015. I feel like a guest speaker. <laughs> I have so enjoyed the messages that have come forward here lately. Uh, Brother Baj, Elder Baj, preaching on root upheaval was uh, revolutionary in my thoughts and inspiring uh, to my ears and life. Hearing Pastor Slaughter from the Arising Church last Sunday speak about how to handle trials from the law, the prophets, the writings, and the Brit Hadashah, or New Testament, was a blessing to me. Uh, I want to go ahead before I give you a, a title and get something that's become a tradition for me out of the way. Islam is evil, but I love Muslims. Muhammad was a pedophile, and the Quran is a satanic book. And Allah has more in common with Satan than he does with Yahweh God. Having said that, we love to see people liberated from the bondage that the Quran brings. We love especially to see women liberated from the suffering that Islam causes. We're a church that is unafraid. Unafraid to say the truth. Unafraid to stand in the truth. Unafraid to proclaim the truth. Unafraid to be misunderstood for speaking the truth. I'd like to start with you in John 18, and our title today is called Semantic Drift. <clears throat> in 1815, say there when you were there. I'm going to go ahead and issue one last disclaimer. This morning will be like drinking from a fire hose. We are not a scripture light church. We are not the kind that is interested in entertainment from bell to bell or a 58-minute experience from parking lot to parking lot. If you go to a sporting event and you're invested in the outcome, you'll stay for overtime. Today is likely to be an overtime event. In John 18, starting in verse 15, actually, let's pick 1837. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Back up a chapter. Go to the 17th chapter in the 15th verse. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Right before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed to the Father, and he didn't pray just for himself alone. He prayed for all who would believe in him, all who would accept his message in the generations to come. And he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's an interesting thing. Jesus did not pray to be raptured from his responsibility. Jesus did not pray, get us the H-E double hockey sticks out of here. Instead, what he prayed was that the word would set us apart because the word is truth. When speaking to Pilate in that 1837 verse, he says, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. This divides the world into two categories. 
those that stand in the truth that is the Word of God, that is Jesus Christ's very character and personality, and those that stand in a reality of their own making. Pilate revealed where he stood in his very next phrase. In verse 38 he says, What is truth? To some truth is relative, and to others truth is absolute, a very anchor for the soul. We have found the truth in the Word of God. Could you ever be more frustrated than in a day of changing definitions? Sometimes semantics means that two people are saying essentially the same thing but using different wording. Very often arguments over the Trinity doctrine are like this. One person uses the word person and another uses the word body, soul, and spirit. But essentially they're still speaking of three parts and yet one God. Sometimes arguments can simply be resolved by acknowledging semantics are involved. But what I'm speaking about today are when words literally change meanings through time. I'd like to show you the word truth as Google has uh, defined it. So right now, if you were in your phone's browser, which is what all of the millennials do when they want to know what something means, you Google the word define truth. The quality or state of being true, so far so good. That which is true or in accordance with fact or reality, again, so far so good. A fact or belief that is accepted as true. No, this is a significant departure from the way this word has been used throughout history. And before you just blame Google, I'd like to submit to you that Merriam-Webster every year updates their dictionary and it's nearly an identical uh, definition for truth. Also, the Cambridge Dictionary. This reflects a social moray that has changed. We live in a time when people do not believe there is such a thing as truth. There are only things that men have agreed on. And what this, has given, uh, what this has given rise to is the idea that one man's truth is as good as another. While we're discussing this idea of semantic drift, I'd like to cover a few words with you just as examples. If you, for instance, put semantic drift into a Google browser and find a Wikipedia article, the Wikipedia article would list three words up front as examples of semantic drift. One is called awful. Awful today has an entirely negative connotation, as in, I hate Brussels sprouts. They are, I hate Brussels sprouts. They are, this is not the original meaning of the word. The etymology of the word actually means full of awe. An example of a word that has survived from its origins till now is awesome. Nobody, when you hear the word awesome, thinks that awesome is a bad thing. But awful, somehow or another, has become bad. I would suggest to you that this is because its biblical usage, especially in the King James Bible, during time periods where God's awe had manifested in a way that made the people have some intrepidation about their condition, translated through ignorant people telling their children that this was a bad thing. See, if you desire with all of your heart to never be in a position where you're uncomfortable, if what you need is a motivational speaker to stand and tell you how wonderful you already are, 
then to be in a situation that is full of the awe of God is awful in the modern context. I don't know whether we have any Brits in the house today. I would suggest you not raise your hand for the next part. <laughs> We've just passed through November. Uh, November 5th, anyway. The word guy, before the year 1605, guy, G-U-Y, literally only referred to one famous figure, a guy named Guy Fawkes. It turns out that on November 5th, in 1605, Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. All over the English-speaking world, you can still find an Australian that refers to another man as a bloke. You can find an Englishman who refers to another man as chap. If you go to a place like India, you will still hear those things in use, also in Sri Lanka, also in parts of Africa. But in the 1800s in the United States, bloke, chap, and fellow were universally replaced by the word guy. Hey, this guy over there. Could it be that there was an anti-British sentiment in this country after a revolutionary war and we intentionally replaced the word fellow, bloke, or chap with the word guy? See, maybe awful changed because of ignorance. Maybe awful changed because of a reaction to God's presence. But the word guy, as in guys and girls, changed because of a deliberate dislike for someone else. It was a very intentional social change. Which brings me to the third example. The third example that I'd like to share with you before we move on is the word gay. You know, prior to the 16th century, gay never meant anything other than lighthearted, joyous, or bright. Anybody who has ever driven from here to Austin and taken the route that uh, goes up 71 through Seguin, you'll pass... Gay Hill Missionary Baptist Church, which is a sure indicator that there is no one in the church who is under 90 years old. <laughs> now, my issue is not with Gay Hill Missionary Baptist Church. I'm glad they're proud of their name. Today, I want to advocate to you that we might should decide to reject some of the newer definitions. How did this happen? Gay went from lighthearted to joyous to bright. Over time, it began being associated with some kinds of women. If a woman was considered promiscuous, then in the 1700s, you would say that she was gay, as in she was happy to do some things that other women wouldn't do. By the 1800s, there was a common slang term, a gay dog, meaning that this person was as happy as a dog is to fulfill any of his appetites. But the word gay first began appearing in its modern usage in 1935 as a prison slang term. It meant a submissive male who was happy to perform homosexual acts for others. How do we take a word that is essentially pure and sweet and allow it to become something that is ugly and sinful? It's extraordinary how our culture is advancing rapidly towards something that is actually degenerative. You know, you would like to think that to have discriminating taste would mean that you had refinement. Today, the word discrimination means something entirely different. 
In speaking with my children, I can no longer use the word fierce. Growing up to me, fierce meant that somebody was tough. They were tenacious. They were battle-hardened. Now, apparently, fierce means something entirely different. It's interesting how the semantic drift has occurred, how sinfulness has defined our vocabulary. And the Christian vocabulary is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. I want to show you something about the unchanging nature of God's word before we move any further. Could you turn with me to Deuteronomy 30? We're going to start in verse 19. Say there when you were there. Are the rest of you on your way? The word of God is entirely too precious to sit dormant in your lap. Please don't let the screens cheat you from experiencing your own Bible in your own hands. In Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 19, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I shall have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. The Bible sets forward the astounding precedent in human history that God's word is life. And that when you cling to it, it produces life. When you live in it, it produces life. And to choose something as an alternative always produces death. I won't take you back to the garden, but if man had obeyed God's word in the garden, he would have lived forever. The disobedience caused death to enter the world. The law makes the assumption, the, the precedent, that if you will choose God's word... It is intended to bring you life and go well with you and your children. If you ever viewed the Old Testament God as something other than the New Testament God, you have misunderstood your Bible or taken someone else's word for it and stopped reading it. Because the God that we serve gave his law not once but twice. I mean, he gave a second set of stone tablets. The God that we serve sets his word before the people and says, Now... Choose life so that it may go well with you. This is grace in the Older Testament in every form and fashion. Perhaps the reason some people dislike the Older Testament is because of its absolutes. But truth contains absolutes. Real truth has actual boundaries. Turn with me to the prophets. Let us go to Jeremiah 6. If you're new to this concept... When we are teaching, we tend to quote from every area of the Bible so that you will not think that we have selected something cherry-picked. In Jeremiah 6, starting in verse 10, say there when you were there. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed. By the way, that Hebrew word means uncircumcised. The flesh hasn't been cut away. They're stopped up, if you will. Their ears are closed so that they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. We have young men that go and stand in an area of Houston that is renowned for homosexual activity because we love homosexuals. They're being accused of protesting. They're not protesting a man's business. 
They are not protesting anything. They love the people who are going in and out of the establishments enough to present God's word to those who choose to engage them. But the word of God is offensive because it separates light from darkness. It shows us exactly where we are. Just as Jesus said, everyone on the side of truth comes to him. Those that do not come to him are not on the side of truth. The word sanctifies. It sets apart for holiness. The word is the dividing line in human history. I assure you these young men are not out there giving up their evening, their sleep, because they dislike people. They're there because they love people. One of them was recently physically attacked, but it did not stop them from going. The week before, they were threatened with crowbars, but it does not stop them from going. You have to ask, what would motivate someone to do something like that? Well, I know why. Because sitting in this room, we have former uh, cross-dressers. In this room, we have former men and young boys that identified as homosexuals, but they have been set free from their bondage. They have found life. They have found happiness. They are no longer drifting about on the sea of humanity, driven by hollow pleasures. And once you've seen people change, once you have actually seen the bonds of sin broken, you can no longer stand by and pretend that you don't have the cure, because you do. I would submit to you that if people would present the Word of God in its fullness, not just that a behavior is sin, but that Jesus Christ will fill you with His ability to break that sin, not just to forgive its penalty, but to actually break its power in your life, that more people would love the Word of God. In this sense, the church has a responsibility that it has failed in. We've not presented the Word in its fullness. Turn with me to Psalm 19. This would be the writings. Ketuvim in Hebrew. In Psalm 19, I want to show you some things that the law of the Lord does. In Psalm 19, pick up with me in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Say, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Say, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Say, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Say it with me. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. I want to recap this for you before we leave it. And I know I'm moving quickly, but you own a Bible. There are ten things that the Torah is. It is perfect. It is trustworthy, it is right, it is radiant, it is pure, it is sure, it is righteous, it is sweet, it is precious, it is a great reward. There are five things that the Torah accomplishes. It revives the soul, makes the simple wise, gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes, warns the servant. Does that sound like hate speech to you? 
Does that sound like a condemning, overbearing God who simply wants to beat you with a stick? Any accurate view of the biblical narrative, any holistic view of the biblical narrative does not come away with God the caveman with a stick. But what you do come away with is his children are petulant, spitting in his face, declaring that we want what we want when we want it. And then when we've had so much that we get sick, he loves us enough to give us the power to say no. I love the Word of God. I love it with all of my heart. From the New Testament, I want to share one more thing with you, and then I need to show you a couple slides that will show you some of why I'm choosing this topic. In the 8th chapter of John, back to John, the 34th verse. By the way, if you don't know your Bible very well, this is a good place to learn it. If you come on a Monday night to my home, I don't live behind a security gate. There are no secret service Christians that protect me. In fact, my front door is almost never locked. I invite you to come by any time of the day or evening. We don't hide anything that we do. In John 8, 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's a profound statement, isn't it? Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I've seen in the father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. What would make a man who is going into a bar, and we have no issue with the fact that he's going into a bar, with other men who is hoping to engage in indecent activity, what would make him want to try to choke slam a young man who's standing on the parking lot, not parking lot, actually, we're not allowed, walking on a sidewalk praying? What would make him pick that guy? What would make him reach out and put his hands on somebody for that? Could it be that there's no room in his heart for the word of God because if the word is true, then it condemns his behavior? But the purpose of the word of God was not to condemn behavior. It does that. But the purpose of the word of God was so that he would have the opportunity to choose life. We live in a day when all is turning against the Christian message. Our government is hostile towards it. In fact, you can hear right now that all the nations of the world are taking in Muslim immigrants. That's what we're being told. I love immigrants. I love aliens. We have former Muslims in this room. I've not heard of any nation taking in Christian refugees from Syria. I've not heard of any nation taking in Christian refugees from Iraq. The 2,000-year-old communities that have been butchered, raped, murdered, subjected to public humiliation. I don't hear that in the UN. There is a satanic spirit that is moving across the globe right now. It is the spirit of Antichrist. And yet we have the answer in our hands. It is the word of God. Society today is exhibiting a slave's response. 
irrationally angry, devoid of reason, always seeking new offenses, imaginary battles, and redefining of their behavior into something that the world finds palatable and does not call sin. I want to show you a slide from a dictionary in 1828. This was the first American dictionary. The word Christian is a noun by Merriam-Webster in 1828, a real disciple of Christ, one who believes in the truth of the Christian religion and studies to follow the example and obey the precepts. Say that with me. And obey the precepts of Christ, a believer in Christ who is characterized by real piety. That was the definition in 1828. The website that I took it from is at the bottom of the screen. I source everything that I do. I don't make anything up here. We're controversial enough. Let us go to the next slide. This is Google's definition this morning of relating to or professing Christianity or its teachings. Let me ask you what a difference a couple hundred years has made. It's not even been a couple hundred years. In the beginning of defining the word Christian in our society, it required obedience to the teachings of Christ. It required what was said to be real piety. Now, if you are of, relate to, or profess Christianity, then you are a Christian. And perhaps here we have the problem. We can no longer define what a Christian is, so the merchants of truth are murky and muddy waters that no one wants to drink. And those who make their position clear are redefined as haters when they're actually lovers. Turn with me to the third slide. In this slide, we find a definition for life. In a general sense, that state of animals and plants or of an organized being in which the natural functions and motions are performed or in which the organs are capable of performing their functions. He goes into hibernation of a tree does not mean that it's not alive. Let us go to the next definition. This is Google this morning. The condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter, including the capacity for growth, reproduction, functional activity, and continual change preceding death. I find no problem with the definition of life. We have a definition in 1828, and we have a definition today. And yet, even with a good definition, we can't decide that it begins in a womb. How, how could that be? Are we going to say that a beating heart is inorganic matter? Because according to this, the condition that distinguishes animals and plants from inorganic matter. Sometimes the semantic drift is not just in what words mean, but the way that we use them. Let's pick up in the next slide. Marriage. This is in 1828. I first was turned on to the difference in definitions by Judge Scalia. A Supreme Court justice, in his dissenting opinion, quoted this definition. The act of uniting a man and woman for life. Wedlock, the legal union of a man and woman for life. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted by God. Say instituted by God. Himself for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous uh, intercourse of the sexes 
for promoting domestic felicity and for securing the maintenance and education of children. Notice that in the definition, not only does he mention God, but he quotes scripture. Do you know why? Because this is how society at large viewed marriage. Let us Google it this morning. The legally or formally recognized union of a man and woman, or in some jurisdictions, two people of the same sex as partners in a relationship. Okay, so it is now the law of the land. If you've ever read those dissenting opinions, it sounds like they're encouraging revolution. I've never seen Supreme Court justices speak that way. The dissenting four are of the opinion that the five have overruled the will of the people and subverted democracy. Now relax. I might be considered redneck by some. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. <laughs> I'm advocating picking up Bibles, not arms. Amen. What is behind this? Well, depravity demands a new definition. Depravity does not want to be seen as wrong, and so we redefine truth. And if enough people can agree on a new truth, then according to them, it is truth, even if it's not. You know, you can sincerely believe that you can walk through that glass door back there, but what's called sincerely deluded is when you try, slam your face against it, and don't recognize that the problem's with your understanding, not the door. Let us move to the next slide, and then we'll bring an end to this. Merriam-Webster in 1828, when defining gender as a noun, said either male or female. What you see is a screenshot to the right that is representative of all biology textbooks of almost every grade level since 1905. It turns out that two X chromosomes is what defines a female. And an X and Y chromosome is what defines a male. I'd like to show you how Google defines gender. The state of being male or female. Do you hear that? State. The state of being male or female typically used with reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological. I'm not making this up. It's almost as if we've lost our minds and departed from all rational thought. Depravity needs to define and redefine words to be normal. Uh, I want to ask you, when we consider something like this, why are the normal people that, are, when I say normal, hear me out, don't shut me off. When I say normal, why are the ones that are normally offended at everything that is said not offended at this? When you see this next slide, I want to ask where the feminists are. When you see this next slide, I want to ask where the scientists are. Let us look at the next slide. This is the woman of the year, according to Glamour Awards. A 67 or 68-year-old uh, man. Uh, I, I, this defies description. Woman of the year. He's never had a menstruation. He's never participated in uh, giving birth to children. He has no womb. 
He lacks the extra X chromosome needed to be a female. He's never had the ability to lactate. He has male genitals and has procreated as a male, but he's woman of the year. Now, girls, listen carefully for just a minute. I'm not intending to be trite or ugly or anything else. I feel sorry for this man. And that's what he is. He's a cross-dressing man. Biologically, he's a man. Anatomically, he's a man. There's, in every way that any reasonable society would define maleness, he is a male. Understand to every woman in the room what this is saying. This is saying men are better at being women than you are. This is saying that a cross-dressing man with breast implants is more feminine, more womanly, more extolling the virtues of a female than any of you are capable. Are you not offended? Where are all of the bra-burning feminists from the 70s that were so angry? Not a, Look, I want to tell you why you're not hearing more outrage. The rationale that says there is no difference between a man or a woman works two directions. The rationale that says anything a man is, I can be in better. Once we eliminate all difference, then there is no difference. But where are the scientists? Where, where are those? Li listen, if we concede that science is relative and human beings are gods, and this is okay to us, that we can declare our own gender, where will this madness stop? Sin has risen to the point where 1% of the population can convince roughly half of the U.S. that this is okay. In 2008, the Pew Research polls, speaking of same-sex marriage, were roughly 65 against and 35 for. Today, seven years later, they are 55 for. Listen, on this note, the Christian community should learn from and admire the homosexual community. You know why? Because if you took the most exaggerated percentages, not speaking of transgendered, but speaking of homosexual, if we were at 4%, they have managed to convince most of the nation of their argument. If we're speaking of transgendered, which is far less than 1%, They've managed to convince the world that this guy is woman of the year. And that if I say that that's ridiculous, I know we have children here, but let's just be honest. He has a penis. I mean, the absurdity of having to say that sentence in church. <laughs> Where does this end? Where would you ever draw the line? Now, some of you are sitting out there going, oh, oh that's just craziness. It's, all. it's not out there, friends. This is the way that the world now learns. This is the way the world now defines things. This is, listen, we have already lost the battle for the definition of what a Christian is. We have already lost the battle for what the definition of life's beginning is. We have already lost the battle for the definition of what marriage is. And we just lost the battle for gender. The next to fall will be individual freedoms. You will be being told that you are free 
while you're enslaved by the state. If you can't feel that, pick up a history book. It is happening all around us. This is why a small business can no longer decide who they sell a cake to, even though there's hundreds to choose from. The Bible is the antidote for the most wicked and rapid societal transformation in the last thousand years. I want to show you the tenth slide. Then no more slides, only Bible. Merriam-Webster's preface to his dictionary. It's the way the world was viewed in 1828. In my view, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. No truth is more evident to my mind than that, that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Look, I was never a Webster fan. I'm not trying to sell dictionaries. You know, I'm not here for political speech. I believe in the kingdom of God. I was asked to join a political organization last Monday. And I said, I have zero interest. And the sales pitch went forward. And I said, by zero, I don't mean some fraction. I actually mean zero. And the sales pitch went forward. And I said, son, you're not hearing me. So let me grab both shoulders, speak to you where you can't miss it. I do not want to be on a list. I don't want to sit in that seat. I don't want to be associated with anything that you are doing. You are free to do it, and I support your right to do so. But I don't want to. I believe the world will change through the preaching of the gospel. I want to lead you on a journey. I want to take you through biblical history this morning because it's an inspiring, truthful tale of hope for the present crisis and all future crisis. Are you interested in what the Word of God has to say? This is not just an archaic book. It's living. It's active. It is spoken. I'm not going to go through all the statistics about how many people have bought this book and how many people own this book and how many of these books are printed. I would simply like to appeal to your reason for a second. The reason some entities are always looking for a new fight is they have no moral foundation. So they're floating from offense to offense looking for some, something to fight about. Christianity stands on the same rock that it is always, that the Word of God is true and everything else is subject to man's error. I have no new battles to face. I simply want to stand and testify about the Word of God. Now, what we're... Leaving the political sphere. Uh, I w- would like to tell you, I don't want to vote for either of these men. And yet we live in a world where in the news media right now, Barack Obama, who went to the most privileged schools in the United States, who lived in Hawaii in a private residence that most people would never be able to afford, and was raised by all white people, is authentically black. And Ben Carson, whose parents were black, was raised in near poverty and suffered through all of the things that anybody in Chicago growing up would suffer through is somehow not authentically black. Listen, we need to stop drinking the Kool-Aid. 
And I'm not here stumping for that guy. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm honest to goodness not. I really think all of you ought to make up your own minds about those things. If Jesus Christ was running for office, I would vote for Jesus Christ. I'm going to go through the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, and then I'm going to finish in the New Testament. We'll try to move at a pace that won't keep you here all day, but also a pace that you are capable of following. Is that okay? Let us start in Exodus 24 because it's a good place to start. This is in the heart of the Torah. Have I bored you? Listen, I ask everybody when you come here to judge us by one thing. You either feel the presence of God or you don't. And if during our worship you feel the presence of God, if during the preaching you recognize a testimony to truth, then I I say love us. Consider joining us. If what you experience while you're here is you don't think the presence of God is here and we don't testify to the truth, then by all means, you really should go find somewhere else. And that's not because we don't want people here. It's I don't feel the need to beg anybody to be a part of the truth. Uh, I don't want to manufacture for you some kind of best life now experience. Uh, I, all I want to do is stand in the truth. Amen? Amen? Exodus 24, let us read 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. Verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's word and laws. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws. How much did Moses hold back? How much did Moses decide they weren't ready for? How much did Moses decide... You know, I probably can't build a big congregation in the wilderness if I tell them this part. Moses told them the full message. It reminds me very much of Acts chapter 5 and verse 20. Peter is led out of jail and the angelic messenger says, you go tell them the full message of this new life. If we want to see people set free, you cannot stop with you're a sinner. You have to tell them about how you become a saint. You have to tell them about the Holy Spirit of God's ability to renew your heart and mind. You have to tell them about the baptism in the Spirit of God that will change you into a man that has power. And if we decide not to do that, well, then we haven't told them the whole message and we're at least partly guilty for the deception that they suffer under. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Now, this is similar to a marriage vow. In a marriage vow, you say, I do. In the years to come, it might be we do, we three, we four, five, donkey, elephant, dolphin. Makes no difference anymore because truth is now relative. Notice when they heard the whole testimony... Hey, that sounds absurd, but I promise to a future generation it will not. And it's not taking very long. What used to take hundreds of years to get a semantic drift now doesn't take seven. Listen, let's let's go ahead and applaud our homosexual friends 
for showing us that if you're fully committed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can change the world. If Christians were half as committed to righteousness as homosexuals are to sin, we wouldn't be in this position. We have let them down. If you're in a position that you hate them, you need to examine your heart and the king that you serve because he doesn't. He loves them. The most loving thing that you can do is tell somebody when they're wrong. Show them how to get right. That's the most loving thing that you can do. It's not love to see somebody on fire and walk the other way because you're scared to offend them. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. I want you to get this. Moses preached it and Moses wrote it. He didn't stop with a verbal message. He wrote it down. He used every medium that was available to him. We need to preach the word. We need to write the word. We need to make movies about the word. We need to put it on the radio. We need to put it on banners. We need to put it anywhere that we can. I'm probably the least technologically advanced person that you know. I don't, I'm not ashamed to say I hate it all. I really would like to park my pickup truck in the front yard and shoot off the back porch. But God apportioned a different life to me. So when the, when the topic came up of an app for this church, I said, whatever it costs, let's do it. And Wade's like, what, what it costs does matter. Let's, let's pray. Let's see. No, no, we have to do it. Because whether we preach it or write it or send it, I, any way that it can be done, the word of God is the cure and we have to get it out. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning. I hate to get up early. I do. I stay up till four in the morning easier than I get up at four in the morning. I'd rather stay up two days straight than to have to get up at four o'clock one time. <laughs> but when Moses received the word, he, he wasted no time. He wrote it. He preached it. He got up early the next morning and began to commission men. He took it seriously. How long have you had the word of God and what have you done with it? We can all talk about the evils of the world, but what is your responsibility to the world that we live in? He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the, of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. If I teach on the 12 tribes, we'll never leave this. Let, let me say this. If you take out a concordance and you look up the word 12, it appears in Exodus 15, 27, where there are 12 springs springs of living water that fed 70 palm trees. It's a part of our vision. We believe that we can become a spring of living water feeding the 70 nations of the world, which is the number of nations that the Jews say are in the world. In Exodus 24 here, there are 12 stone pillars at the foot of the mountain. In Exodus 28 and in Exodus 39, there are 12 stones on Aaron's ephod. Uh, they even have the names of the 12 tribes inscribed in gold on the stones. What you ought to get from this symbology, if you will, is that these 12 stones represent the calling, the unique purpose of each tribe. Every stone was different in that it had a divinely inscribed name on it, but they were all at the same mountain performing a purpose. You know one thing that we've not done in Christianity? We've not preached enough. We have not taught enough. We have not loved enough for people to see that every person in this room has a unique calling. You do not have a cookie cutter calling, one that you can just go get off of a shelf. You don't plug neatly into some church format and program. 
You actually have work that you alone were destined to do. The second chapter of Ephesians says that you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. Not them, you. That, that's an extraordinary thing. I think we're so happy that people sit on their salvation and put money in a plate that we don't tell you that you were called to do something. Moses preached the word. He wrote the word. And then he went and set up monuments to what each tribe could do to interact uniquely with the God of Israel. I mean, that's extraordinary. Let's pick the next verse. Then he sent young Israelite men. Say it, young Israelite men. There's a reason that we don't typically send 70-year-old foot soldiers to battle. And listen, there are some women athletes in this world that rival uh, men. I get that. Uh, statistically speaking, that's a ludicrous argument, and I'm not going to get into it. There's a reason that we typically sent men to fight battles. It's how God designed them. It has nothing to do with whether or not uh, you can. It has to do with whether or not you should. Now, if what you hear in that is some kind of strange feminist argument and, and it begins to cause the hairs on your neck to stand up, examine yourself to see if you're in the truth. The Bible doesn't say he sent old Israelite men. It says he sent young men. And they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. He sent out that youthful generation to take a message of sacrifice and fellowship. That's important. When we leave all of the work to those who are 50 or older, we are aborting the previous generation. They don't get the experience they need. They don't, they don't get the passion and empowerment from God that they need. How about the next verse? I'm sorry, you got it. Six. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half, and he sprinkled it on the altar. Then they took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. Before we read the response, uh, Moses preached it. Moses wrote it. Moses set up monuments to their callings. Moses sent young men. And here, Moses serves in their sacrifice. They went and performed the sacrifice before the people. And he comes alongside them and serves. There's a beautiful symmetry in the Bible and in the preaching of the gospel. We're not supposed to neglect the youth, but we're also not supposed to neglect the older, more experienced. They're actually supposed to serve in each other's ministries. Now tell me, do you see that going on in churches? See, it turns out that according to the law... We are not presenting the full message. What we're basically presenting is that if you'll come here, participate in our programs, pay for our super apostles to be on staff, then you will have done your service to God. And by the way, you're just old sinners. It's a devilish lie. I've been transformed by the renewing power of the Holy Ghost. I am no longer a sinner. Sin does not define me. Christ's righteousness does. I could think of no more miserable position than to be aware of my sin and unable to do anything about it. 
But I am now able to do something about it because I have relied upon Christ and His Spirit empowers me. My competency doesn't come from me. It comes from Him. And I can actually look at sin that used to master me and say, not by a long shot. I won't be bribed away. I won't be seduced away. I won't be intimidated away. Get out, devil! So a young man that used to sit with a shotgun in his hands considering putting it in his mouth now only wants to preach the word of God and have it fill my mouth. Church in the law, we see what it is to preach, to write, to set up, to send, and to serve. I know we've all become skeptical, but Islam and secularism's depravity are giving us a chance to stand out in a whole new contrast. This is an age of opportunity. I want you to consider a couple things before we move to the prophets. A guy named Zinzendorf in the 1700s, he initiated a hundred years of 24 hours a day prayer in a country called Moravia, and they sent out missionaries around the world. In the 1740s, George Whitfield ushered in a great awakening in this country. In 1825, Charles Finney lit a fire to a second great awakening in this country. In 1904, Evan Roberts turned the Welsh lands upside down for Jesus. In 1906, an uneducated, blind in one eye, African-American named Seymour shook the world with a second Pentecost experience on Azusa Street. Thank God for William Seymour. In 1950, Duncan Campbell saw societal transformation in the Hebride Islands picking up on the work of John Gibson Patton. Everywhere we look, the Bible has been able to transform. Do you know the Hebride Islands were once cannibalistic? Church, I'm telling you, don't give up before you start. The full message is what people need. No half measures. No boiled down Sunday school messages. They need the full message. They deserve the full message. We can't leave it to the prosperity pimps on TV that are more interested in their welfare than everyone else's. The job falls to you. Turn with me to the prophets. Let's pick up in 1 Kings. When you get to 1 Kings 18, let me know. In 1 Kings 18, I want to read to you a threat. I said 1 Kings, it's 2 Kings. Sorry. Y'all are fast. In 2 Kings 18, verse 27... But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things? And not to the men sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine. Aren't you glad we read that? You have to have some appreciation for what is happening. This is during Hezekiah's lifetime. This is during the prophet Isaiah's lifetime. We're somewhere around 700 in 16 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to the Assyrians. The lone voice for Judeo thought in the world is the southern kingdom of Judah. 
and a war machine that, just to be honest, the movie 300 borrowed from when, um, when they created that scenario at the hot gates. Uh, it's more historically accurate to say that that was a representation of Sennacherib. Sennacherib comes marching against the southern kingdom and he is literally carrying the heads of the kings of the northern kingdom. Everywhere he's gone, he has scorched earth policy. They raped the women. They cut open the pregnant bellies and, and dashed the babies on the rocks. They do unimaginable things. And now there is an army standing outside Hezekiah's gate who is literally saying, when we're done with you, you're going to have to drink urine and eat filth. Can you imagine how intimidating that must have been? Now think about what was at stake. What would the world look like today, not only without Christianity, but without any Judeo-Christian thoughts or principles? I mean, because we know it's working so well for ISIS to, uh, to operate off of Islamic principles. And I would like to argue with you that Islam is nothing but a whore that is masquerading as a bride. Okay, if you ever pick up the Quran and can muster your way even most of the way through it, you will see it is a corruption of the actual scripture. Didn't even have the decency to make up his own lie. He took the truth and perverted that. But while we're on the subject, what would the world look like if you did not have a definition of what premeditated murder was? What would the world look like if you didn't have the institution of governmental authority? What would the world look like if you had no moral code like the one Moses gave us? Well, number one, if Hezekiah loses here, there are no Jews. Number two, then there can be no Christians. What would the world look like? All of Europe would be different. All of the West would be different. You could only make the argument that a couple cultures in the world, considered not Occidental but Oriental cultures, May, may have uh, been pervasive. And typically speaking, they're the ones that subjugate women, promote slavery, and the strong rule. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to the land of your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Listen to these words. Now choose life and not death. You talk about semantic drift. Where did, where did Sennacherib's commander get these words? Where did he find out about the promise of a new and better land? Where did he hear about standing in the word of God and choosing life? The devil is co-opting God's words and twisting them. Boy, that is going on all around us. There are these weak-willed pansy pastors that are allowing the word of God to be twisted. They're powder puff Christians, little lollipops. They don't have the intestinal fortitude or the courage of the Holy Ghost to stand up and say what the Word says. It's a shame. 
I wish they would do us all a favor and just quit. They would do less harm to the body of Christ if they just shut up. Because the message they preach is twisted with worldly thought and lies. The Word of God is true and will always stand true. Pick up with me in chapter 18 and verse... I'm sorry, chapter 19 and verse 14. Then Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Say, spread it out. out. What do you do when you're faced with intimidation? What do you do when somebody tries to choke slam you? What do you do when somebody threatens you with a crowbar? What do you do when the police treat you like a criminal simply for praying for people? for loving people, for only engaging those who engage you. What what do you do? What we're taught to do in the Word is spread that out before the Lord. Lay it at His feet. Wait for direction from the Lord. We don't act on our own. His ways are true and His ways are right. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is not our reputation that is on the line. It is God's reputation. It is not us they are rejecting. If we stand in God's word, it would be God they are rejecting. But our hope is not that they reject, but that they accept. We can consider ways in which we can preach the Word of God more fully, but we cannot consider ways in which we can change the Word to make it more palatable to the depraved. In 2 Kings 19 and verse 35, you see the Lord's answer. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. Hezekiah really didn't have to do a lot. He had to stand fast and trust the Lord. He had had to hear the word of Isaiah, the word of God, and he had to put his trust in it. Now, God's not interested in killing people. Please don't rejoice that 185,000 Assyrians had to die. They were slaves under a slave master. We don't rejoice in the judgment of the people that are around us until it is the great white throne judgment on that day the righteous will be glad but today it is our hope to persuade those who are bonded to sin and don't know what they're doing this is why Stephen forgave people while they were stoning him this is why Jesus forgave people while they were crucifying him it's a terrible thing to be a slave we need to recognize that when we stand in the truth we have a perspective that no one else can have And when you stand outside of the truth, they can only think like slaves. We need to offer hope. Don't be intimidated. Trust in the Lord's word. In the passage from the law, I hope you gathered that we don't give up before we start. We preach the full message. In the passage from the prophets, I hope you're gathering that we have no need to be intimidated. We were told by the police that we would be Put in jail next week. All that sounds like to me is an invitation to go with my brothers. My own son says he's not sure he wants me to go. I don't know why. Y'all can talk to him about that. But I don't want 
I don't want the brothers to go to jail and I don't get to go. I like prison ministry. You people can get up and leave when you want to. I want to tell you also that this same Hezekiah reinstituted a Passover that I don't have time to read about. But it was so powerful that none of the priests were ready, none of the pastors, the, the paid ministry were ready. And when they saw the movement among the people, the priests were ashamed of themselves. And they reconsecrated. There could be such a movement in the body of Christ that these weak-willed sister pastors, they could be ashamed of themselves and repent. Now, I'm going to be sweet to every lost person that I meet, but if you claim to be in the truth and you're a weak-willed sister pastor, that's what I'm going to call you to your face. Please don't think that, that I'm joking. Some of you have been with me in those meetings. I tell a man that I'm preaching about the sacrifice of Christ. I tell a man that we are preaching about making ourselves poor that we might make others rich. I tell a man that I'm preaching about the need to take up your cross and follow Jesus daily. I ask him what he's preaching about and he says how to think like a millionaire and how to be a millionaire. And God is my witness. I leaned across the table and said, you, sir, make me sick. I didn't get invited to that pastor's meeting again. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. Let's go to the writings. We might make you sad, we might make you glad, but we will not leave you in the middle. In 2 Chronicles, let us pick up in 34. I want to briefly touch on something that you're probably familiar with. It's what I think the antidote for our time is. In 2 Chronicles 34, look at verse 16. Then Shaphan took the book of the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. I'm sorry, I read that incorrectly. Verse 16, Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to their supervisors and workers. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. We might need to rediscover the word of God. We might have fallen so far from biblical truth that what is being preached is mostly platitudes. The doctrines and dogmas that we're clinging to with all of our hearts may not actually even be derived from the word. And no one would know because the Bible is the book that everyone thinks they know what is in it, but no one has actually read. I hear it all of the time. Oh, I, I read the Bible. When's the last time you read Zephaniah? Well, um, you know, I'm sure I read it. Well, let's narrow it down. Did you read it this month? No. Did you read it in the last six months? Well, I, be careful. Don't lie to me. I, I don't know. Have you read it this year? When can you say for certain that you read it? Turns out they may never have read the book of Zephaniah, but they're sure they know what it says. Are you settling for table scraps when you can feast on the abundance of the Word of God yourself? We might need to find the book of the law. We might need to rediscover the Word. Look at 34, 29. Say there when you're there. 
Then the king called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He, he the king, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. Oh man, you, Jesus Christ is not the king of subjects. Where are you at, Ray? He's the king of kings. You want to be a king? Stand and read the word of God publicly. Grieve over people's condition. Tell people what the word says, not what your pastor said. Not what today's Spurgeon's devotional said. Not what you heard some limp-wristed pansy preacher on TV who is trying to seduce you for your money, what he said. Tell them what the word says. You know, Muslims are not scared to pray in public. Muslims are not scared to fight for what they think is the Holy Quran, although I think I've made it clear as a satanic book. I keep mine right next to the bacon. <laughs> this whole nation was renewed because of what the king did. Amen. The whole nation was renewed. Listen. I want to go ahead and submit a truth to you. Josiah did not avert judgment. Judgment still came. Judah still went into Babylon. But think of all those that got saved before they went into captivity. If you were going to be enslaved by a government, in what state do you want to do it? I've observed that those who are in right standing with God are blessed even through captivity. The Lord's able to keep us alive even in famine. I want to be right with my God even if the whole world around me is wrong. I get it. I'm one of those guys. Pastor Sutherland was right. I stand where I stand. My question is, why do you not stand with me? Why are you not one of those guys? Are you just going along to get along? Brent Vincent's not. He posts all over Facebook. Things that I just can't buy, they're bold, they inspire me. He goes and stands out in front of Planned Parenthood and offers people a chance at life. Shows them what an aborted fetus actually looks like. Turns out that when you can see that, you might not want to do it. Do we need to rediscover the power of the word? Do we need to read it in the hearing of the people? I want to go to you, go with you to the New Testament. And the reason that I want to do this, and I know it's getting late, but I promise not to bore you in what's coming's better than anything that was before it. I don't think it is a good habit to get in to lament the condition that we're in without presenting the solution. I don't think it's a good habit to get into to talk about the woes of the world without talking about the solutions to the woes. I'd like you to consider a couple things. We're going to go through these in fairly rapid succession, okay? John 14, 17. I'm going to just put it on the screen for you. Watch the screen for a minute and take a note, okay? I rarely tell you to do that, but because I need to get to some things, I want to do it this way. The spirit of the truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The word of God is true and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and he will set up his residence inside of you. We're not talking about just reading from a legal book. We're talking about reading from a living book with the spirit that wrote the word, the spirit that is the word inside of you. 
That's an entirely different thing than just knowing the right thing to do. How about John 15, 26? When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of See, Jesus doesn't just expect you to stand in him. He will stand inside of you. The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father will testify about me. I want you to understand that we are not saying through willpower you do this. We are not saying that you just need to be more determined. We're saying that when the spirit of truth enters you, you also will testify. For you have been with him from the beginning. When the Holy Spirit enters you, you have Power, all the power of the heavens is inside you at your disposal used at his discretion. This is why men go from hiding in the corner to preaching in the public squares. This belies another problem. What we've called spirit-filled is not actually spirit-filled. To experience a gift one time in a corner at a youth retreat is not the same thing as being continually filled by, by the presence of the Almighty God. When I ask people, are you spirit-filled, I'm going to start asking them how many times. Because we are to be being filled. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into how much truth? For he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit of God is everything. 1 John 4, 1 through 6 and then we go to our New Testament societal transformation. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. That says everything about how you have a glamour award with a cross-dressing 68-year-old on it. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. There are only two camps. Don't let the semantic drift take you down a road that we should not go. People can use the same word, but they mean different things. When we say truth, we mean the absolute truth revealed by God. I'd like you to consider the pressure of the first century Christians. Julius Caesar was in his ultimate power from 49 B.C. to 44 B.C. In the year 42 B.C., two years after he died, the Roman historian and poet Virgil wrote that he saw Julius Caesar ascend into the heaven. There was a comet that year. And he said the comet was Julius Caesar's ascension. From this, the Roman propaganda machine began to teach that Julius Caesar was a god. He was deified. This meant when Augustus Caesar came into power in 27 B.C. and ruled to 14 A.D., the formative years just right up to Christ's bar mitzvah, he had the title, the Son of God. 
Augustus Caesar not only was known as the Son of God, his birth was celebrated with 12 days of Advent. The poets in the political machine of his day said peace and joy to the world because Augustus would certainly bring universal or Catholic peace to the world as God's son. I mean, you think our politicians are bad. They don't go this far yet. Although, since we've redefined what the female gender is, and anybody could be woman of the year, I could think of a few people we could elect instead of Mr. Jenner. The slogan, there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved, was popularized and printed on coins during the reign of Augustus Caesar. This is the era in which Christianity entered the world. Were the decks stacked against us? Yes. Was society wicked beyond description? Yes. During Augustus Caesar's reign, it was not even considered adultery as long as you were sleeping with somebody else's wife that was of lower standing, or husband for that matter. There was a whole group of boys at the Roman games called Catamites that didn't even wear pants. They were simply there like popcorn or grapes for pleasures. Tiberius Caesar followed Augustus Caesar and he reigned from 14 to 37 A.D. This is most of the ministry of Jesus. This offered people an interesting contrast. What Rome had to offer and what they said was the Son of God and what the kingdom of God had to offer and what the kingdom of God said was God's Son. We have the same contrast today. We have the same imbalance of media time as today. Jesus didn't print coins with his name on it. He didn't hire poets to, to paint billboards and, and write poems that they forced people to sing. You know, there's probably no bigger societal transformation that we could mention to you today than what happened in Ephesus. Ephesus is today Turkey. It's hard to believe. We will probably send some of our finest young men to Turkey in the next few years. Turkey is the place where the East meets the West. Turkey is right now near civil war. But at the turn of the first century, Ephesus had 500,000 people and about half a million. That was big by ancient standards. In Acts 19, this is where Paul had an encounter with the goddess Artemis and idol makers. And do you remember the whole city chanted for about two hours, great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians? And a particular blacksmith was warned, was uh, concerned that Paul was robbing her of her divine majesty. This is where in Acts 20, 29, Paul warned the Ephesian elders from your own number, savage wolves will rise up. They won't spare the flock. In the year 431 AD, this is where they declared Mary Theotokos, the mother of God. By the way, Artemis was a virginal goddess. She had a celibate priesthood. And in about the third century in the strata of dirt, she began to appear with a baby. But that's not a message for today. Ephesus became the seat of the Roman Empire. You say, that's, that's awful strange. I thought it was Rome. Because of its position, both geographically and in a cultural sense, 
Rome wanted to show their power to the Greek world. And so a man named Domitian, who reigned from about 81 to 96 AD, he set up what he called his Neochorus, his world headquarters in Ephesus. Now, our, one of our other pastors is right now in Washington, D.C. And so you get pictures of him outside these big white columns, right? You, you get all of that setting. It's a very Greek setting, very Roman setting, Greco-Roman setting. What Domitian did was he took the 24 gods of the Greek pantheon and he put likenesses of them. Then he built a ceiling and put his throne on top of them. That's an interesting image, isn't it? He had a marketplace that you can visit today called an agora. There were altars designated throughout the city to worship the emperor. One of the ways that you knew whether or not someone had worshipped the emperor was whether or not they had ashes on their forehead and hand from the sacrifice. And it's reported that without ashes on your forehead and hand, you could not buy or sell in the marketplace. Domitian insisted on being addressed as my Lord and my God. He began letters that have survived to this day as your Lord and your God commands you. Every imperial statue that was made of his likeness during his reign had to be made of gold. There was a royal choir in Ephesus that sang 24 hours a day with 24 singers, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. Is that incredible? What did the Christians face in the first century? He had coins minted with the saying, Lord of lords and King of kings. He was so cruel that with a single word, he ordered the extermination or annihilation of an entire people group, and it was carried out by the might of the Roman Empire. The Domitian Games are probably the biggest symbol of Rome's successes. They began the Domitian Games with him holding a scroll in his right hand, symbolizing the authority to rule. He had all of the rulers of the provinces present themselves before him at the beginning of the games and he would begin his statements to them, this I have for you and this I have against you. Any of this sounding familiar to you? There was a worship section, kind of like in today's football games. There was a worship section where he provided white clothes to the people. And they were told to worship Domitian dressed in white. The priests wore crowns with divine titles on them. And the people were commanded at certain points in the games to shout, Great are you, Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive glory, honor, and power. Worthy are you to inherit all the earth. There are four different colored horses that raced around the arena at the end of the games. The last thing that would happen is death in Hades would come out and clear all of the bodies. The reason that I'm telling you all of this is in the law, when the people heard the full message in Exodus 24-7, it required a response that was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the prophets, when intimidated by an outside force, it required us to go to the presence of the Lord, trust the word of God, and stand our ground. 
in the writings. When everyone else had lost the book of the law, it required us to hold fast to the word of God, to read it in the presence of the people. And the New Testament is really no different. They stood and faced unimaginable odds. There were more people killed in the gladiatorial arena, arena for being Christian than otherwise. Some years more than 50,000 people. Everybody likes the movie Gladiator? Marcus Aurelius put to death 50,000 Christians in that arena in a single year. And those scenes were cut from the movie because people were scared that you might not buy the tickets to the show. They're on the extended DVD. I want to give you a vision that you get to leave with. I want to tell you that it is time to learn the power of the word. It is time to put away intimidation. It is time to renew our commitment to preaching, teaching, sending, sacrifice, and serving. It is time to be filled with the spirit of truth. I can think of no better way to leave you than with this. This is Revelation 19, starting in verse 13. In the midst of Domitian's reign, the apostle John wrote these words. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The early Christians looked into the face of Imperial Rome and they said, we have seen into the heavens. And Jesus Christ is the only king that we will serve. And they would not bow the knee to social pressure. They could not be shut up. They could not be backed up. They could not be imprisoned in a way that the preaching could not get out. Hallelujah. Oh, by the way, within 40 years of Domitian's death, 90% of Ephesus was Christian. I want to tell you, sin is not the only thing that has the power to transform a society. Righteousness can have a more dramatic effect than sin ever thought because it will last. The question is not, do we have the antidote? The question is, do we have the will to apply the antidote? The question is not, is God willing? The question is, are you willing? Do you need to renew your commitment to the king today? Do you need to be filled with a spirit of power clothed from on high with the renewed ability to witness, to speak in other tongues, to prophesy, to work miracles because the world needs it? We'll never leave a service without praying for those that need to be healed. I believe that what I've testified to today is truth. And because it's truth, the Lord will demonstrate his kingdom in our midst. He will show the truth of the message. I'm not scared to be backed into a corner. If you have an illness, we want to pray for you. But I'm more concerned with your soul. You know, according to the definition of Christian, 
of or relating to or professing, I could just as easily be called barbecue. I could just as easily be called a hamburger. But we all know that's not the definition of a Christian. The one that is a Christian is filled with the Spirit of Christ. He lives for the teachings of Christ. He is walking out in a daily fashion the deeds of Christ. Anyone who loves him must walk as he walked. Could you be called a Christian in any other age but this one? Could you stand to your feet?